I'm recording now. <laughs> hey, that's a cool sound. How'd they do that? <laughs> already a bad idea, right, Chris? You're already feeling sampling it. Sampling is awesome. Sampling, there's so many fun things you can do with sampling. Dogs on a keyboard. <laughs> This is good stuff. Well, let's get right into it. <clears throat> Welcome to Lost and Found and Rewound, a podcast where it is a bittersweet fact that the hosts are always right when it comes to superhero movies. I'm Chris Lost. Uh, I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. You all know what I was referring to. The Batman? The Batman. I, you know, because I've said previously on this podcast that there's never been a good Batman movie, and I hold to that even after seeing the Batman and that Rick is right that superhero all here superhero movies are trash I, I think I'm done I think I, I think I think I've fallen to, to Jim's or Rick's point of view on it and then Jim is right to never really ever go see superhero movies so I feel like we all have either gotten to or have taken the right approach with films have you seen the Batman either of you Jim no right no, no. I went to see it in IMAX Ooh. Which, again, I, I despise. I forget. At least the IMAX theater in our town, the volume is too high. And this is from a person <laughs> oh, who has yeah, yeah, abused their... Well, no, I, I was sitting next to a 12-year-old who was like, is it going to be this loud the whole time? <laughs> it was just... It was obnoxious loud instead of powerful loud, you know. But I, that may be just the way they've tuned the room. But yeah, no, I, I, I was... I had the same feeling that I had about the Joker, or Joker, sorry, the Joker. <laughs> right, that's going to be the sequel. It's going to be called the Joker. Um, it's a Steve Miller documentary. <laughs> I, I feel like these directors are, you know, making movies akin to Taxi Driver, you know, '70s era, you know, social commentary films, but they they fall completely flat in our current era. And I want. I want movies or that nineties era Fincher <laughs> films. Yeah, you mean? yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that—that that cynicism and the questioning of system, the systems. It's like great, but is—is is the end result? And you know, it's great to talk about. I guess it's not though. I'm, I'm tired of that discussion. Is like, oh, is there's a fine line between a vigilante and a vigilante? apparently is what the conversation is now, right? We're, we're down to that, right? It's like, oh, these are vigilantes, and one is good, and these others are bad, and it's complicated. It seems like maybe maybe the good guy isn't necessarily a good guy. Or the bad guy's got a good point, like Thanos <laughs> and, you know, trying to save the world by reducing the population. Yeah. And save the universe, I should say, by cutting the population in half. Yeah. It's and an so interesting I, point of view. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm done, I, you know, and I don't know if I need to have, you know, Christopher Reeve selling, saving, saving the world again, you know, that, those type of superhero movies. But I, it's like, if, if we're going to be continued to be plagued with these movies, come on, at least do something new. If I hear any more about how it's our new mythology, this is, you know, this is high art or, you know, this is equivalent to, you know, all that Joseph Campbell bullshit that we've been hearing. It's been 40 years of this now. It's, it's over. It's like, I don't need to hear about how these are legitimate stories anymore. It's like, let's, let's move on. 
my take on it was 90 minutes in, I was like, oh, I can't wait to tell Rick how great this movie was. <laughs> and then after after the next 90 minutes, I was like, holy shit, Rick was right. God damn it. <laughs> it's like, it's like, why are you making a three-hour Batman film? Make a 90-minute Batman film. Make it fun. I love the muscle car with the 60s Batman jet on the back of it. Great idea. That worked. The reveal though was really lame. I felt like it didn't I didn't I didn't get amped up at all when I saw the reveal. It was just kind of like, okay. It was like when he first showed up too. It's like, oh, here's some dude walking around in his Doc Martens. It's going to beat up some people. It was like there was like there were there were some amazing shots and amazing, you know, set pieces, but it's like a couple of them were just like, wow. I mean, this doesn't even seem exciting. He could turn his neck though, at least. <laughs> His neck turned. It was the noir Batman I've always wanted, but it was just like twice as long as it should have been. Too many Quentin Tarantino-esque references to other films. I also think Tarantino's kind of ruined films. It's like, I think he effectively can do that. I don't think any other director can, and they should just stop. Like, we don't need a scene from Seven in the middle of our Batman film. Just cut that scene out. There's, there's 90 minutes like when we cut out of the film. Cut out all the references to other films. Yeah. I, just make I, a noir Batman film. I barely tolerate it when Quentin Tarantino does that stuff. So, Who's Batman now? Is it Keanu? <laughs> it's Keanu Reeves. Cool. It's Batman. I might have to go see this. I'm Batman. <laughs> it's uh, a guy who played a vampire. Robert Pattinson. I've seen <laughs> him good. in a couple of good, really good you know, indie films. I mean, he's he's good. He's done the right thing, I guess, where you... You go and you do a bunch of indie films, and then you get the big blockbuster, and you get to make ten or twenty million dollars for a couple of years, and then or a hundred million dollars, and then and then you go back to making indie films or whatever he's going to do. Was either that, or yeah. was he going to be the like the next Bond? Is that what it is now? It's like either is he oh. up for Bond Batman? again? Probably. You get to be yeah. Batman, or you get to be Bond, Bond right? and he chose Batman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're the same thing. Yeah, that Bond film. Skyfall that was that was just a complete copy of the Nolan Batman film like shot for shot. Mm-hmm. I think I've I've gone over that on this the Joker and Javier Bardem being the same character. Mm-hmm. You could just go you could go point by point and it's just the same movie. They both burnt down their mansions at some point. <laughs> yeah, film. that's right. I remember you talking about that. Uh, yeah. Batmobiles that shot things and stuff is like all it was basically the same film. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Batman, are we? We're here to talk about one of the greatest superheroes in prog rock, in the history of prog rock, Mr. Phil Collins, <laughs> and his incredible drumming and how it changed the world. Rick, do you want to tee up our topic today? I have uh, extensive notes. I could basically do a, a two-hour monologue. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate you guys into this. well then i'll say we're talking about the intruder drum sound how and and i think at one point we were going to debate not amongst each other but just try and investigate much like batman the world's greatest detective figure out who truly discovered the intruder drum sound because the intruder drum sound not only did well by that song but it actually was then used on one of the most famous songs of all time in the air tonight by phil collins so 
I knew Rick would have plenty of facts about the intruder, so I, I, I brought a bunch of tangential facts. Uh, so before we unleash Rick, <laughs> Jim, did you do a little investigation on the intruder drum sound? What, what was your process before we, we get into to mm. Rick's notes? Because I know, because I'm eager to hear who yeah. Rick thinks invented the intruder drum sound. Well, I was trying to figure out when I became aware of this sound and if I was ever aware in the moment, you know, how pervasive it was. And after, you know, so what I gather, it's come back, right? In pop music, there's all these pop songs that it's it totally, you know, everyone's into the, you know, all the 80s synth, whatever, what is it? Synth wave? Is that what it's called? There's like some, one of those genres of electronic music now. It's all people doing 80s music on 80s equipment and stuff like that. So chill yeah. wave is that right no. yeah i think it's there's all kinds of waves there's yeah chill wave and something like that i don't know anyways it's it's obvious that yeah now after hearing it it's like oh yeah I, this was a thing and i don't i don't remember really being aware of it in the in the midst of it i mean i obviously remember in the air tonight the other obvious one was uh well it's on everything it's on all those songs like duran duran and jack stuff. and diane yeah jack and diane that one was like oh yeah oh wow like okay yeah. the drum fill drum solo thing and it's like oh yeah that was a few years later well, i was like probably 85 or something 84 yeah i never thought about it until rick started talking about it and i started looking it up and it was like oh yeah it's and it's come back and and at the time obviously everyone knew about all the recording engineers it was like oh we have to get this sound and everyone started copying it and maybe i just took it as oh yeah that's what drums sound like or <laughs> i mean i remember i guess i remember the phil collins song that's where i I mean, but I, I don't know if it ever occurred to me. It was like, oh, that's an interesting sound. But Well, should we do a quick uh, synopsis of the initial moment, the mm -hmm. intruder drum sound itself? Yeah. Yeah, the Mr. Watson, come in here, I need your help moment <laughs> of, the, of the intruder drum sound. And I know there are, there are multiple stories, multiple perspectives, and so maybe we can start talking about it and then start weaving in what we've heard. So, well, the genesis of this all is that, you know, uh, Peter Gabriel was making his, was going to start making his third solo album, which is now people... Wait, did you did you say that intentionally, the genesis of this all? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, Peter I didn't. Gabriel I didn't. Was... It must just be in my mind. And so... I was waiting uh, for you to call out the pun. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so... Uh, Peter Gabriel, I believe, was a fan of the production work that Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padham, the engineer, had been doing on XTC Records. He got together with them in the uh, legendary Townhouse Studios in London. It just happened that uh, Townhouse had just gotten one of the first uh, SSL consoles, which was kind of the uh, recording console that sort of defined the 80s, because up until then... Uh, mixing consoles didn't have compression and <laughs> gates on every channel, right? You'd have to, if you wanted to do some kind of special effect, um, you'd have to patch it in, you know, from the microphone to a preamp, maybe to an effect. And, and it was a complex process, whereas uh, this new sort of mixer had these built-in effects. And Peter Gabriel's tangentially, like his, is that his, he's, he actually, Peter Gabriel, at least for a while, was part owner of SSL. But that, I think that was later. Wow. Hmm. And so uh, they got together in the studio. Um, apparently, the day that they were going to start recording, Peter Gabriel woke up in the morning and decided, I don't want any symbols on this record. <laughs> he, 
on a whim, he just decided no symbols. Now, I'm not so sure about that. I do know. I mean, so Lou Reed has said this before. A lot, a lot of people have a problem with symbols in in re, in the recording studio. Like symbols eat guitars, right? There's even a band called that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so it may not be just a simple uh, thing where Peter Gabriel on a whim said, "Let's let's just not have symbols." Uh, it may have also been, but it may have also been the influence of world music. So as he was starting to explore non-Western music, um, he was noticing that there aren't a bunch of people going, you know, the hi-hat is a very, you know, Western sort of modern invention. It's not that really... was allegedly the motivation, was yeah. his his interest in, in global music or world music. Uh, just a quick side note, Josh Ohm from uh, Queens of the Stone Age has the drummers record all the drums without the cymbals and then add the cymbals afterwards, which um, there's a clip of, I guess, uh, Dave Grohl getting extremely frustrated (laughs) trying to record a drum part just with drums and no cymbals and then going back and recording cymbals, which, I I mean, it kind of makes sense sonically, but that's got to be very frustrating for a drummer. And it was yeah. for Phil Collins. Phil Collins and Jerry Murata. So there was also, uh, Phil, Phil Collins was recruited to play drums on the record, but also Jerry Murata played uh, drums. And yeah, I think that was the first question when Phil set up and, and then Peter said, no cymbals, Phil. And Phil said, well, what am I supposed to do with my, <laughs> what is it, my right hand, <laughs> right? No, my left hand. Yeah, my right hand, right? He plays, yeah. So it, it was it was a little bit of a problem. Jerry Murata, the other drummer who plays on like Games Without Frontiers, he plays on most of the record. Actually, there are, there are only three Phil Collins songs on the third Peter Gabriel solo record. Uh, apparently, was very frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> the great band Throwing Muses, their first couple of records, at least their drummer wasn't playing cymbals. So they, I mean, there's th- that was later, but you know there are instances of that, and then also recording the opposite where bands that uh, at later in the 80s started using drum machines and the only problem was is that the cymbals on drum machines don't sound good typically right <laughs> and so you'd have all these drummers come in and doing a cymbal overdubs right <laughs> so everything would be done with with drum machines and then they would have to put in cymbals on top just to make it sound good in quotes and we we should add that Phil Collins was available for these sessions because he needed a distraction from his his first uh, one of first of many divorces. <laughs> uh, he was splitting with Andrea Bertarelli, who he was with from 1975. From one day at a time. You know that's not true. She was married to I did not Phil say, Collins before uh, before Eddie Van Halen. How dare you? that's not Valerie Bertinelli. <laughs> You, I you thought Eddie Van Halen. Wait, so she didn't marry Eddie Van Halen? I thought all barely... those Italians sound the same to you. Well, <laughs> funny you should mention Van Halen because the song "Intruder" was described as the menacing instrumental from the Diver Down album. It was recorded when it was determined that the band needed an intro for the Pretty Woman video because the video ran longer than the length of the song. Hmm. And effects included Eddie twirling his tremolo bar and rubbing a can of Schlitz malt liquor beer against the strings, as well as massive doses of feedback. The working title of the song was Jams 4. A wildly different experiment in the studio created the Van Halen song Intruder. And the reason for it was that David Lee Roth wrote 
the video for Pretty Woman without consulting the duration of the song itself. <laughs> and when his script came in at a certain duration longer than the song, they had to actually create an opening to Pretty wow. Woman. And that's why there's that crazy opening track. <laughs> crazy. That's, that's so, fascinating. We should do a whole episode on that. <laughs> On the video for Pretty Woman. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Rick. So then um, they uh, set up Phil in the townhouse uh, studio, the stone room. So that was the thing. Is It's not a, an exceptionally large room, but a, a reflective space. It had the drum set up in there. Typically with uh, studios, um, there are talkback microphones. Initially with studios, you'd be in the control room and there would be a microphone in the control room and you'd be able, the engineer and producer would be able to talk to the musicians. They'd turn on the microphone, talk to the musicians. And then the musicians, you know, uh, might talk back, but there, you know, typically wasn't a talkback microphone. But I believe the SSL, yeah, the SSL had a setup to, to have a reverse talkback. So it was actually set up where you could put a microphone in the studio that was specifically for the artists in the studio to talk back. Right, <laughs> which was which was a radical thing before that. The engineer and producers would would talk at the musicians, and maybe the musicians would talk back, but it would come through the you know uh, a microphone, maybe. But you know, it was kind of a one way conversation, which is a com uh, a point of confusion for me because you and I had a conversation about this. I was playing with guitar effects for songs that I was recording, just trying to get my effects straight. I wasn't recording at the time. And I was getting this incredible depth of delay out of my guitar. It was like stereo upon stereo. And I wasn't quite sure how the hell I was getting it through my pedals because the pedal settings didn't change. And like as I was playing with my headphone mix, it would kind of come in and out. And what I realized was in the control room, the talkback mic was on. Hmm. And the audio in the control room comes in about, you know, half second delayed. So I was not only getting my direct sound of my guitar stereo in my ears, I was getting a mono talkback secondary repeat. And so I was getting this huge depth of sound from my guitar, which I then just replicated with two delay pedals. But I had asked you, Rick, is that what... I was like, what do you mean talkback mic? Because I was thinking you meant the talkback mic in the control room, but it's not. It's the talkback mic in the, the, in the drum studio. room. In the studio, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Apparently, to the way this mic was set up is it had a compressor on it. So a compressor squashes sound, so it makes quieter, it's very simplistic, but quieter sounds louder and louder sounds quieter. It basically levels everything out. And so the live room talkback microphone was squashed so that if somebody said something quietly in a, in a corner of the room, you could still hear it. But then if somebody hit a snare drum, right, that, that it would get squashed down. So you get this very sort of hyper squashed room sound. And then to prevent issues with feedback, it also had a gate on it. So what gates do is they only allow sound through when it's at a certain, above a certain volume. So if there's quiet sounds going on, it turns off basically the microphone. The microphone would turn off, you know, if somebody's just kind of walking around or snorting cocaine, right? That's the gate's not going to open. But then somebody says, hey, I can't hear my kick drum, right? All of a sudden the gate would open. And so that was, that was the setup. There was a setup for, for the talkback mic. And the, aggress the gate was very aggressive. Right? Super so aggressive. Like, 
the console, right? Too. It was the yeah. The SSL so, was built in. Yes. It's the so, specific compressor made just for that. Yeah, which I in, in fact have a plugin that from yeah. SSL that emulates the talkback microphone. So the thing is, is that these SSL consoles had specific compressors on each channel. So like you'd mic up a a guitar and you'd have a compressor on that channel, but then there was also a mix bus compressor that's different, and that um, is for squashing the whole mix. And then the talkback mic had its own compressor. <laughs> Right, so there, there, there are three different types of compressors on on this version of the SSL console. Super nerdy. So Phil Collins was doing a drum check, I guess. Right, he's just playing a drum beat, and Hugh Padham, the engineer, is sitting there filling around, and the talkback mic opens up while Phil is playing the drums, and he's just playing a drum beat, and Peter Gabriel went, "Holy cow, what's that?" <laughs> What's going on there? And so the combination of all these things, I actually have a little audio example of of the the, the different different parts. If you want me to play it, not not of the yeah, actual parts, but but an example of of how it works. Mm -hmm. So I've got a sound of like some dry toms. Could you hear that? Yeah. Yes, and then and we should point out the, yeah. the resonance of the toms is what you're listening to. Or maybe play it again, Rick, and, and for the audience. What you're listening to is that after the tom is hit, it, there's a very natural decay to the resonance of the tom. So boom. Yeah. So this is what you would call a close mic. So microphone's up close to the drums. And then you've got a room sound. So in this case, this, I'm just kind of using a room sound. So here would be would be... So if you imagine a microphone in a, a studio just picking up the drums inside the room, you get that. And then the very if natural you resonance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Very just natural a, resonance to those drums. Yeah. And then if you squash that with a compressor, you get So that's just the room sound squashed and it makes the drums sound a little more a lot more percussive and it amplifies that that reverb. And then if you gate that sound, so you stop it, let's see how it sounds here. It's a little extreme, but that's that same drum room sound, but then each hit only opens up the sound, so you get that reverb sound, but then it cuts off. It doesn't hang. And then if you combine it with the drums, you get a... And my, my mind is not as powerful, but... <laughs> Peter Gabriel heard this drum sound coming through the talkback mic and uh, got very excited. So let's, yeah, let's play that drum sound. And what I've heard is that Phil Collins was actually hearing that talkback sound and he was kind of playing the drums in rhythm with the gate. Like he, he started feeling the gate like where the gate would open and close, and so he sort of played with the, the way the gate was opening, it, the timing of the gate, and so that meant that each hit, right after it closed or stopped, he'd hit another drum, right? So it kind of defined the ryth rhythm. And, and, and I believe it was Peter Gabriel who said, let's, let's put five minutes of that on tape. And so Phil Collins sat there for five minutes playing that drum beat. <laughs> and they wrote a song around it. 
which is brilliant, <clears throat> which um, is sort of the MO of the album. Uh, I listened to being a huge Genesis fan in high school. I then bought all the Peter Gabriel albums and ran through them incessantly and then really burnt out on them and really kind of came to the conclusion that other than so, there was really only one or potentially two good songs on each of the Peter Gabriel albums. But the one thing that he did master or was really good at was loops, essentially. He he found fantastic loops that like would make the song. And like if you listen to each song, even Salisbury Hill, which is I think uh, I could listen to it a million times a day, is just a fantastic loop. That guitar part is is awesome. I could listen to it over and over and over again. And I think with Intruder, he found this this series of Phil Collins drum hits mixed with this this very aggressive gate that sounded beautiful but then super eerie and then i think he probably wrote the song based on the tone of the drums i don't know that for a fact of, of how he got that the song is about a burglar who breaks into a woman's home and is never caught and gabriel wanted the listener to hear a feel a sense of urgency so he made the song intentionally creepy he says that it was one that he enjoyed performing live uh, and he uh, gabriel also cited the work of filmmakers bernard herman and Alfred Hitchcock as influences on the song. And that's the thing is this proto-loop era. You think about this record, especially Intruder, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, so Brian Eno, David Byrne record, where it's it's kind of loop-based, but they're, they're people playing the same thing over and over again. And then also it, it goes back to Fila Kuti, right? So that's also you got 11-minute songs that have riffs repeated over for 11 minutes, right? And so it's, it's the, again, it's that Afro-pop influence that was starting to seep in and kind of tying to looping and all before you could have digital technology that allowed you to do looping easily, right? You'd have to basically loop as a human or, and also James Brown, right? So you got you go back to James Brown and well, and I could listen to Fila Kuti and James Brown forever, right? It's yeah. the, the David Byrne and the thing I think sort of killed David Byrne and Peter Gabriel was this fascination with looping. And, and I'd probably have to go back and analyze the variance in their songs in, in sort of Fela Kuti and, and James Brown versus David Byrne and Peter Gabriel. Because I do feel like where Peter Gabriel fell down in those records is he just got so enamored with the loop that nothing happened or very, there wasn't <laughs> enough that would happen to vary uh, the yeah. song. And so after you got past the first 30 seconds, it just was boring. You know, it was him singing over the loop. Well, as someone who always tends to write music that just has one chord, you know, I, I worry. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely a very attractive thing. It, it, it's, it's a, you know, drones and repetition and minimalism. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, yeah, becomes very meditative, but then externally it may, may wind up being very boring. <laughs> but Fila Kuti is a great, great, yeah, example of, well, yeah, you can go for 11 minutes and it can be really amazing. And, and it's what you need to study to understand or James Brown, right? Yeah. Or Jimmy Page, or you. I mean, like, I don't. I actually, I don't think your music is is loopy. I guess maybe, um, maybe some of your current stuff is. There's a trick to it, right? You can't just rely on the the magic of the loop holding the whole song together. There needs to be more to it. And you yeah. know, like Jimmy Page, all those Zeppelin songs are just the same riff over and over and over again. It's just such a damn good riff that it works. Yeah. So there's a cast of characters involved in this recording. And it's a really important cast of characters. Well, first off, the studio, Townhouse Studios, right? So the studio space itself, that room and that sound. Obviously, you got Peter Gabriel, so who is the person 
I think everyone agrees, thought it was something that what, what Phil Collins was playing in the sound that Hugh Padham, the engineer, was getting out of the talkback mic. Peter Gabriel was the one who, who had the realization, oh, this is something that we can build a song out of. And then you've got Steve Lillywhite, who's the producer. Now, I'm already going to play my card here, where it's like I'm slightly suspicious of Steve Lillywhite as being part of this. So he's, he's there, he's a producer, but maybe that's going to be part of this process is going through and listening to maybe what everyone did afterwards. Um, also, very interesting, I love this. Uh, Nick Lane was assistant engineer in the room uh, at Townhouse. So Nick Lane <laughs> actually, it's, you know, is, I mean, recent stuff. I mean, he does all of Nick Cave's stuff now, but has a long history of engineering and producing amazing records, Idols, like the Idols records, if you've listened to the Idols, like recent bands. He's amazing. He was there also. And so all these people are in the mix. It's the summer of 1979 and autumn of 1979 when they're making this record. I have a couple of examples of things. Also, Dave Gregory from XTC, he was the new guitar player in XTC, plays on some of the other songs on this Peter Gabriel record. So (laughs) Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Patton had been producing... XTC Records, right before the work on Peter Gabriel 3 happened, they were making drums and wires with XTC. And so I thought it would be interesting in Townhouse Studios. So Steve Lillywhite, Hugh Padham, and Townhouse Studios, same space. I thought it'd be neat to listen to Making Plans for Nigel. And if you listen to Making Plans for Nigel, which is on drums and wires, recorded probably a couple of months beforehand, same space, same engineers and producer. Listen to this. Now, that, that famous intro to uh, Making Plans for Nigel, you listen to it and you go, oh, wow, that, that's kind of a big drum sound too. But what's different about it, what's kind of in the mix at this time is, is the Martin Hannett kind of influence. So Martin Hannett, who you know, had produced the Joy Division records, right, was very much about playing with these new digital delays from AMS using delay boxes and reverb you know, effects to create these kind of larger-than-life sounds, right? Studio sounds, which was, again, part of the 80s, right? That's very much about the 80s sound. And so if you actually listen to Making Plans for Nigel, it's not the room sound. It's not the intruder sound that's making the drum sound big. It's extra reverb added in, as opposed to the natural room sound. Well, and the decay's not cut off either. That's the big difference. Yeah, and, and you have that kind of bigger sound. And so what's interesting, and what I love about this is, so then they make the Peter Gabriel record, and then, I, yeah, the Peter Gabriel record comes out. It's, it's an amazing record, but that doesn't necessarily make this drum sound universal. And so the next summer, again, Steve Lillywhite, Hugh Padham, and Nick Launay is back as tape operator at Townhouse, and they're recording the next XTC record the next summer. And so if you listen to uh, the drums in Respectable Street, all of a sudden... You hear that same sound. They've obviously gone and said, oh, okay, we're going to do the intruder thing again. We're going we're gonna to get that sound. And so some of the keys to that sound are that you don't use cymbals, <laughs> right? Is, is that in that townhouse space, apparently, like once you, once you, did, you got this sound, if you hit a cymbal, it would just blow up everything. It would just go and, and explode, and you wouldn't get that explosive tom and snare sound. What you'll notice about these songs is that intruder... It's all toms. 
Yeah, it's <laughs> lots of toms. There are songs on Black Sea by XTC that have cymbals, but you can hear it. It, it actually kind of squishes down everything. That, that explosive sound disappears. He got three people working on a respectable street Black Sea XTC record the next summer who were in those sessions, and they're, and they're using their tricks now. They're using these tricks. Then, same summer, Steve Lillywhite goes off and does the first U2 record. And he does that in a different studio, studio in Dublin. He doesn't have Hugh Padham with him. Nick Launay is not there. Um, and so I will follow, though, if you listen to it. And you listen to some of the songs on the, uh, the first uh, U2 record you hear. Is this Boy? Is that the first U2 record? Yeah, Boy. similar but it's playing drums in a hallway i think and then having mics and doesn't necessarily have those gates right this is the part i love nick lane the tape op and the assistant engineer is working at the townhouse and public image limited is trying to record a new record right after uh ja wobble has quit the band uh, nick lane's the tape operator for steve lily i think it's steve Lillywhite was initially supposed to produce the flowers of romance record um, what became the Flower of Romance record. He quit, and then there was somebody else who was engineering it, but the person engineering this Public Image Limited record didn't understand the SSL console because it was a new thing. Nick Launay, who had been hanging around in all these sessions, right, and worked at the studio, was sitting there being a tape op. So what a tape op was is the person who turned on and off the tape machine. It was kind of the low man on the totem pole. Well, the low man on the totem pole in the studio system was you, uh, you, you would get tea and coffee for people, right? And then you would move up to tape operator, and then you'd be assistant engineer, and then you'd be engineer, and then you could be producer after that, right? And so Nick Lane is sitting there, and as, as this guy is trying to figure out, the engineer is trying to figure out how to use the console, he's just bouncing back and forth from the tape machine and going and showing this guy how to do everything. And apparently, the engineer walked out of the room, and John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, locked the door and said, Nick, just can you just do this because this guy doesn't know what he's doing and i'm getting really tired of watching you walk back and forth trying to get everything working for him and then the guy you know comes back and the door's locked and is pounding and johnny rotten wouldn't open the door and so nick lane became the engineer on this record apparently johnny rotten john lyden really liked peter gabriel three <laughs> <laughs> nick lane got the intruder drum sound working for Flowers of Romance and a lot of that record. So the Public Image Limited record, which was uh, late November or October November in the fall of 1980. You got this. So there you go. So Nick, Nick Lane basically which which basically launched his career so once he got you know recorded this he was already you know engineering stuff and uh once flowers of romance came out everybody was like oh man that drum sound right so even though it was the kind of the same drum sound as the intruder sound he was able to take that sound because he knew it he was there he was an eyewitness it was it's the same studio he knew how to set it up got it working this very percussive sound uh got repurposed for public image limited and then that leads to that fall. Phil Collins is working on the solo record. Face value. Face value. And he gets Hugh Padham 
So this is the thing is Steve Lillywhite's not there. <laughs> he doesn't ask Steve Lillywhite. He has Hugh Padham, the engineer, to come by. And who's the assistant engineer? Nick Launay. If you watch the documentary on the making of Face Value, it's like a 20-minute YouTube video. Uh, it talks about how Phil Collins... Uh, Padam talked about this in the podcast that we re recently listened to, is that Collins is very opinionated about how things should be produced and didn't want a producer there. So I don't know, if this, this might even reinforce your theory, Rick, is he might have said, well, I'm not sure what Lily White was doing. I can do, you know, I need, I, if someone needs to make decisions, I'll make the decisions. You know, I just need engineers to be pushing the buttons. But Collins is listed on, as both an engineer and a producer on face value, but also Padam is listed yeah. as both an, an engineer and a producer on the record. And so that's the thing is a lot of the tracks, like In the Air Tonight, started out as an eight-track reel-to-reel recording that Phil Collins did in his, I don't know, his house or his rehearsal space. He, he, so a lot of the songs on face value are, um, come from his demos. So In the Air Tonight, the drum machine, the synths, maybe even the vocoder part, are from his original demos. They just took his demos and ran them off onto a 16-track or 24-track machine and then, you know, overdubbed stuff. And so probably that's a way that a lot of the record work, right? Face Value and Abcab both came out in 81. Genesis, Genesis came out in 83. All three of those albums, maybe not so much Abcab, but uh, certainly Face Value and um, Genesis, Genesis feature that that drum trick, the intruder drum trick. And all three of those records, Phil Collins was wringing out all the pain of his divorce into those three <laughs> records. That's the main subject matter for those three records. But speaking of face value, there was an interesting coincidence that happened amongst the three of us today. Face value, I actually love that record. In the Erdonites on the first side, I particularly love the second side of that record, which starts with the song I Missed Again, and I would argue that the first one, two, three, four, five songs on that B-side just make up one of the best broken-hearted pop records of all time until you get to the last song. Uh, but I'll read the, the first five are I Missed Again, You Know What I Mean, Thunder and Lightning, I'm Not Moving, and If Leaving Me Is Easy. <laughs> you, know, you can kind of read into those titles. Rick, do you know what the last... I do. Song on side B is that completely ruins that <laughs> side of the record, and I'd argue completely ruins the record. Talking about looping, right? I'm assuming, yeah, because we were talking about drones and looping. It's Tomorrow Never Knows, right? Right. Yeah, he it's does a cover of Tomorrow Never cover. Knows. Wow. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. I have, I, well, I have obviously the In the Air Tonight fill, right? This, everyone knows this sound. And then, yeah, like you said, Abacab. Almost right after that, they did Genesis, and so this Abacab fill. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> the thing that I think on In the Air Tonight, that, you know, yes, that fill is so famous, but I think what really makes that drum interlude really cook is the snare part that comes right after the fill. And it's actually... If you think about Jack and Diane, I, I heard a legendary story, or you know, who knows if it's true, a mythical story about the drummer who was enlisted to do that drum solo on Jack and Diane. He did it over and over and over again, and doing different solos or whatever, and they couldn't quite couldn't quite get it. Everybody was just saying no, and then he just like 
decided to just go out there and try that very simple fill, which is essentially just like a couple toms, a lot of space in between the drum hits, and then just a really hot snare hit. You know, he's just like riding the hat and then hitting the snare. And in, in, in the air tonight, I don't know if you remember, but after that fill, he kind of does a really um, hot sort of snare hit, that, and that's where you really hear that gate kick yeah. in. And I would argue even on Intruder, it's the gated snare that really gives it that punch, not so much. The toms are great, but it's when he goes to the snare is when that oomph is there. And, the, and that snare sound is what defines the 80s, right? It's so like, regardless of how people afterwards got that sound, whether or not it was, it was a, a, a talkback mic in Townhouse Studios. Actually, Abacab was recorded in a different studio, so they were able to get that sound somewhere else. But yeah, just that gated snare sound becomes almost the universal snare sound of the 80s. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. Prince used this sound extensively and grew tired of it when he got to Sign of the Times, which is something that I read. But uh, So Sign of the Times was where he kind of ditched the gated snare, but if you think about Parade and the song New Position on Parade is a really good example of a what I think is a mixture of acoustic and drum machines, acoustic drums and drum machines, using that effect to sort of emphasize his, his production prowess. Uh, that, I don't know if you have that sample with you. I don't. I have some more samples. I have, like, so Hugh Padham, because of his work with XTC, got hired to do the fourth police record, Ghost in the Machine. And, and what's interesting to me is different studio. They went to Air Studios and oh, what was the other studio? I can't remember. He's not, not using, using it universally. So if you listen to, like, One World... Um, a super re reverberant sound, but it's not that that gated sound because, and I mean, definitely the snare has that '80s kind of super reverby, but it's not the gated sound. I don't think Hugh Padham's not using it on everything, which I think becomes problematic <laughs> for for Steve Lillywhite, right? So Steve Lillywhite uses it on everything. That was recorded. Those two police records, Ghost of the Machine and Synchronicity, were both recorded in the West Indies at um, George Martin's studio. It's it's featured yeah. in the documentary Under the Volcano. I recommend everybody 
watch yeah. it and it's a great story about all these artists who came to this incredible place where nobody treated them like celebrities and they could freely record all these records and like the rolling stones went there elton john went there police went there unfortunately it was all like at the tail end of the their great eras in music so they didn't record great records there in fact i would also <laughs> make the argument that while hugh padham has come up with some amazing sounds. He's not necessarily been a part of what I would consider legendary records. So Ghost of the Machine, absolutely. Synchronicity, I don't know, it's like a hit or miss record for me. Yeah, um, um, XTC stuff, all the XTC stuff he was involved in, I love too. Well, actually it gets a little little crazy, some of the yeah, gated stuff on that. But well, then they moved it once once uh, their drummer left and going to the drum machines. I think that was slightly problematic with XTC, the drum machine era of XTC. In the Air Tonight is what really kind of cemented it. There's, you know, Phil Collins produced uh, a solo record for Frida from, uh, from ABBA. This is when I remember I heard this song on the radio. It was one of the first times where I was like, oh, I know this sounds like the Phil Collins record. Right. It was one of the first instances where I could hear production. Right. I think I made like a production connection and it's obvious now, but. So that's I mean, that's the intro to the Frida song. It's a great song. Um, Who's but, playing uh, drums on that? Is that Phil, Phil Collins? So Phil drums? Collins, yeah. and and it's mm. in Polar Studios, so the big uh, studio um, that Abba's studio in Stockholm. In through the outdoor was recorded there, right? Mm -hmm. Or was the previous record? I don't know. It, there were a lot of great like late seventies, early eighties records recorded at that studio, and so yeah, without any of the other other characters, right? It's just Phil Collins. So obviously Phil Collins is an essential part of that, right? Is is having him as the drummer, right? And then probably the interesting thing that that I picked up on in your description that I didn't know was that he started to play the gate, and that yeah. actually makes a lot of sense because as you were playing some of those other samples, it didn't sound like those drummers were playing the gate. They were letting the engineer; they were just playing, and they weren't necessarily listening to the effect. Whereas, you know, I think Phil Collins is one of the best drummers of all time. Just feel and technique, and you know, he's a great drummer, and it just shows that he clearly it has that sense of production to like listen to the gate to play to the gate to create the loop or at least get them to change the timing of the gate so he could play with it because like when you played that sample from the Frida record I was like that's got to be Phil Collins because he's yeah. working the snare and the toms perfectly with the effect and it just sounds like the way he hits he was a very hard hitter and great drummer yeah. anyway how do the two of you think about Phil Collins as a drummer or feel about Phil Collins is a musical artist. I'm fascinated by his voice, actually. So even though he's got the background singer problem, like so for a while there, well, the background singer problem is, is basically if you're the background singer for someone, a really powerful singer, sometimes you wind up sounding like them. So if you've ever heard like uh, The Edge, you know, there's. I'm trying to remember the couple songs that The Edge sings. You're like, is that Bono singing quieter <laughs> it's like oh no it's the edge right and and i think the same thing happened with phil collins and peter gabriel but uh, like everly brothers why they say yeah. well because they're brothers so a blood harmony yeah. yeah but even yeah like i noticed that with like in indie rock it was like soul asylum 
when I first realized, and sometimes oh, yeah. Dan Murphy was singing, it was like, he kind of sounds like he was singing like kind of like Dave Perner. I didn't realize, oh, wait, that's Dan yeah. singing. It's not Dave Perner. Well, they, Ed O'Brien and Tom York. I was listening to OK Computer, and I thought that all those backups were overdubs by Tom York, and it turns out it's Ed O'Brien. He sings them live, and he sings, it is clearly him on the record mm-hmm. singing it, too, so... Yeah. But as a drummer, yeah, amazing. You know, getting into like stuff like Brian Eno from Rick, you know, had Another Green World. It was like the greatest Brian Eno record. And Phil Collins plays on that, you know, yeah, several all over songs. It. And yeah. they're great. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, it's he's amazing. He became this pop superstar kind of MTV, but a real uh, creative original artistic drummer, person, musician, you know, he's great. That core group, right? So you've got Peter Gabriel, you've got Robert Fripp, you've got Brian Eno. People don't lump Phil Collins in with them, but I think they should. I think he's definitely part of that whole, when prog rock evolved into New Wave, it was just kind of a continuum. So I think Phil Collins was one of those people. Well, he became a punchline in our lifetime, right? Like (laughs) there was a period, and I think he's back now, but I think there was a period of time where Phil Collins was synonymous with, again, uh, someone I love, but people may have made a punchline, Barry Manilow, or even Neil Diamond at one point had become a, a punchline. Like they basically saw him as a, you know, like an adult contemporary crooner, as opposed to just a guy with an incredible sense of musicianship. Now, granted, I don't like all of Phil Collins' songs. I can't even listen to anything besides Face Value, and I've got issues with songs on that record. And I've gone deep on all the Genesis records and everything, but like I do admire. He's done more great shit than most legends have ever done, right? So like, <laughs> sure, his catalog of bad stuff is extensive. His catalog of, of amazing stuff is just as extensive. And speaking about him as a punchline, there's this great NPR interview that this woman does with Phil Collins. She's an NPR journalist. She and her boyfriend used to listen to Phil Collins records, ironically. And they would make fun of, you know, they'd listen to them and they're like, because they're mostly about his divorces and they're always about his relationships and they're very, you know, heartfelt and sappy at times or, or brokenhearted, melancholy, um, with Tower of Power horns, you know, <laughs> blasting all through his, his heartbreak. And she then had this interview with Phil Collins where she's like, well, see, my boyfriend and I used to listen to you as a joke. And then as we listened to your music over and over again, we started to take it really seriously. And Phil Collins is sitting there listening to this woman say, yeah, I used to think your music was a joke. <laughs> then as I started to get into it, I, we thought it was really good music. And then she's like, and then my boyfriend dumped me. <laughs> and then I started listening to your records and they had a whole new meaning to me that was like even deeper than when I sincerely liked your records. So now you're sitting on the other end of this conversation as Phil Collins <laughs> listening to this woman say, hey, I initially thought you were a joke, just surface. Then I thought you were pretty good. Then I realized the true meaning in all of this, and you really got me through something. So Phil Collins' reaction was he then started to interview her about their relationship and how hard the breakup was. And he took it as an opportunity to help her work through this brokenhearted situation with her boyfriend. And that was when I said hey, there's a lot of weird stuff about this guy, his political beliefs, there's a lot of music I don't like of his, there's a lot of music I do like of his, but that was a really cool way (laughs) to deal with somebody who just presented you with that amount of information. So, I don't know, in my book, he's he's an okay dude. He's got to be an okay dude. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I've heard that same interview. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. It says something, too, about the power of music, and it's got to be strange when your art, which you use to work out your personal... (laughs) 
issues, right? You know, becomes resonant with millions or hundreds of millions of people and they and then you lose control of it in a way, but it's still very personal also. It's got to be a very strange experience. I was thinking about, oh, in the interview with Padgham, I don't know, Padgham. Yeah, they say Padgham, but I I can't say that name. That's the way he says his name, but I don't like it. I want to call him Hugh Padgham. (laughs) The podcast, it's the guys, well, it's the guy from Spandau Ballet, right? He brought up, I was curious, the first time, yeah, we started talking about this or thinking about this sound, it was like live, like do you recreate this live? And it came up in that podcast. It was like, did they start doing this live? And is it possible to do that live? And it seemed like it's not really, but then they started talking about the AMS, you know, the digital reverbs, how they started becoming presets. This sound became, you could get it in the box. And so they probably did start using it in live arenas or something. I don't know, but if you could really do that, because it's such a big echoey space. Now you, Rick, saw Peter Gabriel live oh yeah like when, yeah when did you see that was early but it was, it was the, after this right or not yeah too long the after. security tour so the record after okay yeah it was the fourth record right the first thing i thought was like hi did, did they start trying to do this live and it's like yeah they do so that's the thing is like the spx 90 so the one of the first sort of universal digital multi-effects Yamaha SPX90 had a gated reverb effect. So it had reverbs, had nonlinear reverbs, which, you know, kind of replicate the sound of a, a room. And then, then they had gated reverb sounds. So yeah. It, if, if you had a big enough PA, still yes. it would, the space right. would drown. You know, if you're yeah. close to the PA, you, you could get that effect, the cutoff. Yes. But, but yes. if you're in certain parts of this giant, if you're in a giant room, it wouldn't work. So it's just... And then drum machines too. Drum machines would have this snare yeah. sound especially in the tom sound built in they they'd add the gated reverb sound to that uh-huh. i think that's what prince keyed off on he started using yeah. it in drum machines mm-hmm. i think you could do it live it would just it would then resonate yeah just really loud yeah like if motorhead if motorhead wanted to do it <laughs> if they had used the gated sound i'm sure yeah it would have worked then you just have to <laughs> crank it that's the thing is this sound you know it became pervasive i have a few yeah. more clips of the kind of up sort of the the arc but then i'm not familiar with motorhead's catalog but <laughs> i, bet I mean it, it's possible yeah, it yeah it's listen. possible there's a record that has <laughs> that would be interesting you know and so that was the disservice is that there's some bands where no, it's not good. Yeah. This is not a sound you should add to it, and it became added to everything. I actually have an example of that. So, And this is a Steve Lillywhite production. Marshall Crenshaw, mm. you know, Someday, Some Way, that right. really amazing kind of retro-sounding song, but then his second record, uh, Steve Lillywhite produced. It's notorious, basically, for, for having this explosive 80s drum sound entirely inappropriate for Marshall Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's just play a clip of it. It's a great song, but it's so overwhelmed by that snare, sort of ultra 80s sound. And this is 1983, so it's, it's, he's, it's, it's still a pretty progressive sound. You know, it's the new hot sound, but people actually say that it ruined <laughs> Marshall Crenshaw's career, right? It's because it's an amazing song. It's a great pop song. I've seen him live play that song. It's an amazing song, but for some reason, just overwhelming it with the Steve Lillywhite production kind of killed it. Mm-hmm. The 80s production that I just started to hate and stopped listening to music altogether, I wonder if it, it could be attributed to this 
effect, because I love this effect on the songs where it works. To me, it, after a while, 80s sounded like everything was recorded in like a pristine white room. Yeah, I can't, that's yeah. the only way I can describe it is as I feel like, oh, because all those videos in the 80s were people standing in white rooms <laughs> and, you yeah. know, with like a, you know, Nagel painting in the corner or something. But I do feel like people went overboard on this particular and I remember the other thing I think about is you can hear the room which to me sometimes is great in production you want to hear the room and you want to get a great room to record in but I think it's the gate that helps you kind of hear the room even more and it, if it's you know some of those XTC records too I didn't like so much because they did sound so very 80s and I, I think that maybe this trick Really, how you affect the drums has a big impact on what genre you're in, because that's what then drew me into, like, that's when I heard, like, In a Jar for the first time in the midst of, you know, it was the late 80s, but I was just finally completely sick of all of that shit that was coming out, Icicle Works and all that stuff. I'm sure they used that effect on that, yeah. that big song they had. But it was like, I heard In a Jar, and I was like, holy shit, this is pop music. It's heavier than any Led Zeppelin song I've ever heard. And the production is just perfect. It's just loud and, you know, all squished together. And there's no effects on the vocals. Like, this is how music should sound. And I think that maybe it's because it is a great song or maybe it's because it just was so, such a reaction to all the things that got played out in the in that decade uh, that I loved it so much. It ties into what Jim said. So the thing, yeah, so indie rock, grunge, whatever you want to call it, alt rock, you know, that was kind of a reaction to this kind of overproduced sound. And maybe it's also like when you listen to the uh, Replacements record, right? The Replacements, you saw them live, and it was this amazing sort of in-your-face rock experience. And it did not translate, you know, that 80s production sound would not translate that experience onto record, right? Whereas the the more kind of 70s production style, although with more room in it, right? Zeppelin, more of a Zeppelin-like production style, maybe late 60s, did a better job of representing that live energy, right? As opposed to the constructed energy of this kind of intruder era of recording. And so that's the thing, is the origin of this, right? So Intruder is the original song, is a song manufactured completely in the studio and inspired by the room and the equipment and, and the musicians, right? But it's still, it's not something that was created as a song. It was something that was created from a sound, a loop, uh, a feel, a studio trick. Yeah, so I think maybe, yeah, the kind of indie rock grunge yeah, as a reaction to that, and then the live thing is part of it too. Well, and also they didn't have a, they didn't have the budgets or the access to the. Right. the thank God they didn't have the budgets or the yeah. access to the studios mm -hmm. to put that stuff. Because then you know, replacements are a great example. My favorite replacements album is Sorry Ma, and then Stink, and then beyond that, there's some good stuff on, but they're all sort of hit or miss. Yeah. records and then you get to don't tell a soul which is just like the ultimate amount of money and production that you could put on a, a record and it, instruments are sometimes discern hardly discernible because of the reverb on that record it's just i don't even know how they got there i can't even <laughs> figure out how they got there you know i read that book and allegedly to some degree they did want to get softer as a band or something but i don't know <laughs> it, it was a bummer i have a few more clips do you want me to play him, or is this too much? Yeah, Am you I should doing play too him. Much? I thought you were going to jump me for criticizing a twin tone artist on this podcast, but I guess you're no. going to let, let that one slide. Not at all. Because, you know, I did that once before and was handed a homework <laughs> assignment that took me several <laughs> hours to complete. 
Actually, from somebody who was on Stink. By the way, you guys know that, right? What's that? Dave Purner was on Stink. Oh, is he? No, is he? Is he the? He, he yells something. Is he in the crowd? Fuck you, man! Oh, okay, yeah. It's like <laughs> He's this one is of the... <laughs> Minneapolis police party That's is Dave over. Furner. Wow, that's great. Fuck yeah. you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a clip of Modern Love from Let's Dance. So obviously, so this this is um, where now Rogers, right, producing David Bowie, and and he's like, okay, this is the new drum sound. This is the drum sound of the '80s, and I think you know this kind of locks it in. Um, and this is recorded at the record plant. Oh no, the power station. Sorry, power station. Very important. <laughs> That's the kind of production that I burnt way out on, although I love that song and that drum sound, so I don't know yeah. what to say. I like it there. Obviously not the townhouse. I'm trying to discern whether or not... So this is late 1982, so already I think there's some digital reverb going on. I don't think it's recreating it with, with a room sound. I think it's starting to use artificial reverb. I do have an example of what I think is Steve Lillywhite. So, and Steve Lillywhite's production on... Well, in October, I listened back to that, but on War, he uses the sound on War. That's, that's great, but I think an example of what I consider... It's, it's so over the top, but I, I love absolutely love this record, which is Sparkle in the Rain by uh, Simple Minds, yeah. recorded at the townhouse. I bought that yeah. a beautiful day. LaGrange. Beautiful day. I think on my bike, riding, I rode home with that on my bike. The, uh, the, the cover, the cover art is amazing. It's the ugliest, ugliest, most beautiful, yeah, vinyl. I bought a brand, yeah, when it came, was that 80? 83. 83. Yeah. Or, well, it may have come out in 84. Sparkle in the Rain. Well, let's, let, yeah, let's listen to a little bit of Up on the Catwalk, and you can hear it. And, and it's in the townhouse, Steve Lillywhite producing. Um, I think we're already into the gated uh, artificial reverb is going on, but I, I love this record even though it's so over the top. <laughs> it gives me chills. It's just so, so much, so much reverb on that. Well, now yeah. they had a great drummer, too. Yes, I was listening to Tears for Fears today, thinking about like that there were these sort of one-hit wonder bands or two-hit, three-hit wonder bands in the '80s. Who I was listening to this breakdown of um, "Everybody Wants to Rule the World," and I was like, "This is an incredible song." It's just the '80s production for some reason kind of ruins it a little bit for me, but I still love it. I'll listen to it any day. Simple Minds, their drummer, so many memorable, very memorable drum sequences and they were talking in this breakdown as a Rick Beato breakdown on YouTube about how there's a part in Everybody Wants to Rule the World that's just a huge instrumental part of a radio pop song which is just not heard of nowadays you, you wouldn't let people play instruments without vocals for that long if you think about it simple minds they let their drummer and their their rhythm section essentially go for long stretches of time just playing things that were incredibly catchy so I think part of the formula and I know you I think you're trying to get to this, Rick, is like, who made this sound? Was it the room? Was it the drummer? Was it the engineer? I loved what I just heard there. I would argue that you've got to have a great drummer pulling and, and someone who's in tune exactly. with what they're trying to accomplish. And that Simple Minds drummer, based on how much I love his parts, I can see him sort of getting on board with what they're trying to accomplish. 
and I'm trying to remember, he was not the original drummer, so there's a switch. He, I'm trying to remember oh. if he shows up on Sons and Fascination, or he shows up a little later, and there's the bass, the, the original bass player is astounding. I love the original bass player, and I think he's, he might still be on Sparkle in the Rain, but he disappears. But like, there, uh, Sons and Fascination is a great Simple Minds record just for the drums and the bass. Because I think it's probably both of them. It's it's the crossover where the the bass player, the great bass player, and then the great drummer comes in, and both of them together. It's an amazing record. <laughs> it's very much what you were talking about, Chris. Is the the loopy nature of it? It's I love the first ten seconds or the intros of each of the songs on that record. The the songs themselves, I, they get a little tiresome after a while because they are just kind of one thing. A lot of times right. that'll lead me to my last sample, which is Some Like It Hot by The Power Station, mm-hmm. which was half of Duran Duran. And then Tommy Thompson, n- Tommy Thompson, not Tommy Thompson, who was the drummer from Chic? What's his name? I think that's right. I think it's Tommy Thompson. Yeah. Right. And then Bernard oh. Edwards, the bass player. So Nile Rogers did Let's Dance, right? And then Bernard Edwards, who was also in Chic, produced Some Like It Hot, the Power Station album. Tommy Thompson from Chic plays the drums. Another great example. Bass too, and and Tony Thompson. Sorry, my Tony apologies. Thompson. Tony God, Thompson. I, yeah, I, I forgot. I think it's easy to forget how jarring that sound was because now with electronic stuff and electronic music or chopping up, you know, it's so common. Like chopping, you know, you can do with computers yeah. like like stutter editing and crazy, you know, jittery stuff you can do. Yeah, and it's good you heard heard that. So so the gate effect, right? So we started out talking about the gate on Intruder, where it, it's you know, Phil Collins playing against the gate and it opening and closing. But what Jim sussed out there is that these are tape edits. And so you can hear like the snare hits will cut off and you can actually hear. And so this was kind of coming from dance music before samplers or the prevalence of samplers is they would record the drum track and then they would start chopping it up, editing the tape, taping it back together, you know, using adhesive tape to tape it back together. And and you could not only make a drum, a live drum part, you know, really rigid. That was kind of before people started People do this on digital now all the time, right? They line up a real drummer to the grid, right? They fix their rhythmic uh, inadequacies. That's what started happening with before sampling and before digital recording, digital audio workstations, is they would actually do that with tapes. But it started out from that idea. Yeah, you'd you'd have a drum fill, but you could chop it up and you could, you know, have certain hits repeat and stutter, you know, in a big country, you know, produced by Steve Lillywhite has that same stuff going on right the intro also has the huge tape edits on the drums and so which would be a nightmare not only, right to do yes analog oh, wise. if you think about it, you're trying to keep the song on a metronome whole i guess maybe not doesn't matter because if you're doing the drum if you're doing tracking it so you have the drummer play a track but you, you're going to try and cut the snare drum quick and then put back enough blank tape so that the measure is still the same length it was before you cut half the snare yeah. hit out of it, which sounds like a nightmare. Definitely search YouTube. It's really fascinating watching. There, there are a couple of great clips of people showing old school um, analog tape, like remix edits. And so it's, it's, you, you see the number of cuts. They're just flying by. And then there's um, leader tape in between. So you'll have things like bop, bop, 
and then it'll go that 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 right with a snare drum, and it'll be like ten little tiny pieces of tape alternating with ten pieces of leader tape, you know, blank tape in between, and they've taped that all together. And the way they did it is they had a ruler, right? You'd mark off based on the tempo, right? And and so you could start slicing the tape, and you'd roll the tape, and you'd measure out stuff, and you you could start piecing it together you know, uniformly. It's, it was totally insane. So everything that people do now on computers, people were doing with tape. They even did it like, was it like window pane or like multi-track yeah. cutting multi-track tape? Like window pane edits, the oh, legendary. Jesus. So you would actually 24 track tape, two inch tape, and you would find just the look like a little checkerboard. slice. Yeah. yeah, little slice of the snare drum track, right? And you'd cut a little window and move the snare drum over. <laughs> and so it wasn't even chopping the whole tape. It was cutting little windows out. Because they were window pane so edits. We're, you know, we we always, <laughs> we did that like in our records. That was already that was still happening. We never never did anything like that crazy window paint, but it was usually drum tracks. You'd record drums yeah. first and then like at Steve's house, I remember like on his eight track machine, we even did that. We were just there for an afternoon or something and he, he did that. You know, that's the first person I ever saw. Yeah. And to, like cut out bits and just look, let's, you know, tighten things up and then re-record it over stuff. But it was like just getting some of the drum tracks tightened up or something. And that was his comment while he was editing stuff is, oh yeah, that, that Pixies record, none of the songs had beginnings and endings. This is basically <laughs> what I did to finish the Pixies record is I had to chop and put things on the beginning and ends because they didn't have, they hadn't figured out how to start or end their songs. And so all that stuff, you know, like the weird little conversations and the stop, you know, all that. That's, that's tape edits. That's Steve chopping stuff up. You fucking die. <laughs> you fucking, exactly. Not many people know that's that. Dave Perner saying that. <laughs> on the, <laughs> that's not true. Well, Jim, Rick's made his case. Who, who, <laughs> Judge Jim, who, who do you see? I'll read off the, 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 contest, the contestants in this trial, and you tell me who won. This is how a trial works, right? There's contestants, and then the judge says who wins. So there is Townshouse Studios, Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, Hugh Padgham, a.k.a. Padham, Steve Lillywhite, or Nick Lonnie. Nick Lonnie never, never has taken credit for that. Nick Lonnie was just there. He saw it, right. and he said, okay. So it's probably him. He's just really modest. <laughs> He's just being humble. Right? He, he's amazing. I mean, so the thing is, is that if you look at all these people, Steve Lillywhite, you know what? He's done like uh, the guy who strums the acoustic guitar and was massively popular. <laughs> Dave. Oh, Dave, Dave Matthews. Dave oh. Matthews, wow. right? right? So let's take Steve Lillywhite off the list. <laughs> um, Nick Lane, out of all of them, I mean, is doing amazing stuff now. I heard, When I heard, was what did I hear? I think I heard the Idols record and I said to myself, I think Nick Lane recorded this. And that hasn't happened to me in a long time where, I mean, like Steve Albini's production, like you could hear that, right? Mm -hmm. And then Nick Lane was a person recently where it was just like, I sussed out almost immediately he had recorded the record. Hmm. Out of all these people, you know, I just need to get a lot of money and hire him to record a record for me. <laughs> Somebody, you know, so I can just sit down and talk to him. You know, Nick, let's, <laughs> let's actually not make a record. I just want to talk to you for... <laughs> for five days, just someone who's who worked on Public Image Limited Records, XTC Records was was in the room when Intruder was recorded, and then also has recorded a bunch of Nick Cave records, and you know, and and a bunch of amazing records from you know 1980 to 2022 has got to be a fascinating, or just yeah, just somebody 
you'd want to talk to. That's actually something funny where I remember Matt from Hum at his studio. He used to have a note on his the site for his studio is like, we will not be talking about Hum while we were recording our record. <laughs> At the, at the studio, it, where it was just kind of like people would like hire, you know, the studio for time, and then they would just spend all their time asking him questions about hum, right? <laughs> Instead of recording a record. So I think that actually can happen, right? Is where if you're a, a working musician or engineer, right, and you have a history, it's entirely possible that you can get into these weird fan situations where nerds will kind of pigeonhole you and ask, you know, basically hire you out for a session, and it's really just an opportunity to to nerd out. Well, it's funny. I was in a band in college, early college. We were like half metal, half grunge. And actually, the more I go back and listen to it, we we weren't into the Stooges at the time, but essentially we had come up with a Stooges-like sound just being scumbags who played music. And we had booked time with Steve Albini to record in his studio. And on the day we were supposed to go record with Albini, and I didn't know how that was going to go because I was a huge fan. And I was like, all right, you got to walk in there and pretend like you don't know him and just get the record done or whatever. He called my mom's answering machine and we and he said, uh, "Hello, Chris." <coughs> like, I'm sick today. I can't record your band. I'm really sick today. I can't record your band. And so I was so pissed. I called up my buddy Matt and I said, "He's not going to record us today." I told him about the answering machine message. So we sampled it. Uh, so now we have this awesome sample of Steve Albini going, "Hello, Chris." <coughs> I'm real sick today. I can't record your band. So we're someday, like I'm waiting until I can get in a band that's big enough to, and then I'm going to put in that Steve Albini sample and be like, hey man, you should have recorded this because now I'm using you in our hit song. I'm using him. I'll be using him like he used samples to piece together that Pixies record. It'll be my, my version of that. Not samples, man. Tape edits. Sorry, tape edits. Big difference. It is a status thing, too. I actually remember one of the engineers, producers we worked with, his comments about he had actually been on a session with another engineer that we had worked with. And his memory was, I remember him doing an edit, and then there was blood everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It was like that was his only memory of this other engineer was that they had been in a session, and he was desperately trying to edit something together and and sliced his hand open right which was always because you used razor blades blades, to do this right yeah they just have on the tape machine they'd have a big box of straight razor or razor blades right Mm -hmm. safety razors and there was always a little bit of little bit of blood on the uh (laughs) the edit block (laughs) because it it just kind of would happen and that's when johnny rotten locks the door right (laughs) exactly (laughs) We've eliminated a couple contestants from today's trial. We now have Townhouse Studios, Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, and Hugh Padgham. 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 Padgham is correct. Padgham. Chris, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say Padgham. 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 A bunch of times, and then every time I say his name wrong, you you go back and edit what I just did. I'm recording this on tape, so that's going to really be a nightmare. I'm going to cut several fingers trying to slice in your pageums. Jim, who would you say is responsible for this? The guy who's modest. What's his name? Nick Lane. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, sorry, that's your it's totally him. Nick Lane wins. All right. I think he's been the most productive out of all these guys. I mean, they've all done amazing things, but he's, well, he's the one that I like the best. <laughs> the Most records that he's worked on. 
But my summation is that it was a clearly a combination. It wasn't one person who thought this. Oh, yeah. It was, and arguably it's Gabriel because he's like, we should use that. Or I was also thinking it was like a Alexander Graham Bell moment where accidentally, dis I don't know, that's not quite right. That's how they <laughs> discovered that it worked. Yeah. Um, as he was ripping off many Italians. I went down the, 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 the black <laughs> hole or the rat hole of trying to figure out who actually invented the telephone because I was going to bring, you know, I'm very pro-Italian on this podcast. I thought I would prove to you both that Alexander Graham Bell, you know, was just ripping off Italians. But the truth of the matter is one Italian guy came up with the concept of the telephone, wrote it down and never built it. Then another Italian guy allegedly built it and then didn't patent the thing that actually made it work. <laughs> so then Bell kind of studied these guys and then actually built and patented the thing that made it work. So I had to give it up to Alexander Graham Bell. If you, you, it's like, you got to learn how to patent or build your own shit, fellas. It's like Tom, Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison with the, yeah, all that stuff. It's like the light with bulb. Almost everything. Like every, yeah. Everyone was working on the light bulb, but he, yeah, had all it. Had a bunch of other people working with them and they just like tore through it you know like okay let's try everything let's try this and this and this and the adult yeah brute force yeah the r d lab yeah a bunch of people it's a bunch of people and it's magical moments and yeah that's that's the thing is everybody you know it, it's great that you're talking about alexander graham bell because it's just like everything where everybody always wants this one person to have invented something and it's like no that's not the way it works and mm. and, and, and and if this person hadn't invented it, it's not like if Alexander Graham Bell hadn't figured it all out, there wouldn't be a telephone now, right? It's like, oh, this is this was going to happen. It was part of human, you know, evolution or intellectual evolution or cultural development, whatever you want to call it, right? And yeah, we call it telephono now. If it were, if <laughs> <laughs> right, if it was, yeah, it might have a different name. But you know, I mean, Alexander Graham Bell thought we should say ahoy. Every time we answered the phone, he was not a fan of hello. He thought it should be ahoy, ahoy. Right. He had some ideas that weren't all the way there. But Hugh Padgham, Peter Gabriel, and Phil Collins, I think, are the, the three key members. I mean, Steve Lillywhite, I, I do like a lot of his production, but I think he's more of a traditional producer, right? And so I'm less... I'm less thrilled with traditional producers, people who aren't engineers, right? I don't think, well, Steve Lillywhite, I guess he's got a little bit of an engineering background, but he's more of the idea kind of producer guy, whereas I favor the producer engineer who helps realize the artist's vision as opposed to has his own vision that he's imposing upon other artists. That's my bias, right, is that I, I'm suspicious of Steve Lillywhite type producers and I'm more in favor of the engineer producer like Hugh Padgham. They've got the chops that kind of make the vision come alive. I guess the other thing that's interesting about this, um, you know, you say eventually they would have discovered this. Now it's funny how music has evolved. You talk often on other podcasts, Rick, about how the era of a band just going into a studio with no idea what they're going to do and recording songs, kind of like the bands did in, in Under the Volcano. They just sort of showed up at this place, wrote the songs they were so talented that they just wrote the songs while they were there, recorded them, and in many cases, they were hits. That's kind of the situation here. I mean, who's got the time to sit around in a studio that expensive and discover something by accident and say, you know what, why don't we do five more minutes of Phil doing that and figure out what that is? 
and then let's stop and write a whole song around it. That I guess it can happen in a home studio. That's what happens in home studios now, and I think it happens a lot. I do think in like sort of mainstream pop production, listening to Trevor Horn talk about his his studio and how he was disappointed that that people were just booking writing sessions, and so in his world a writing session you know in the 60s and 70s that was like you know he builds this amazing studio in london and and he's thinking people are using it as a demo studio where you'd go in and you'd record scratch versions of your songs because you didn't have home recording right and that's what he thought people were doing in his studio but now what people do in studios is is they do what you're kind of talking about but it's it's like sitting there with a laptop right you don't necessarily have a full band a live room or anything you're just in a control room and a bunch of people are throwing out ideas that they've worked up on their laptops, loops, melodies, and they start mashing them together, and then somebody tries to put lyrics on top of. So I do think that that methodology is is happening. It's just not happening in the big giant, you know, studio with a live room that costs you know uh, ten thousand dollars a day to to block out, right? You know, that's that's not what's happening anymore. That 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 stuff is happening. You know, somebody's doing the independent work on a laptop, and then they go into a, a writing studio and they flesh it out, and then maybe somebody mixes it or adds a little bit extra stuff on top of it in a larger studio. But maybe not. Maybe it's the mixer is you know mixing it on, in his home studio, you know, on a laptop. There's there's some pretty mainstream big time pop music or you know mainstream music mixers people who mi- do mixing that that mix inside the box are all laptop based now and using headphones like there's one guy who just always talks about oh yeah no i just use i do everything in, on the laptop with headphones and it's just like that's that's against the rules kind of like it's like everything you hear is like oh how how you can make a record sound good and mix it is well no you have to have at least listen to it through the air through really nice speakers and have a nice mixing console to do that and it's like nobody listens to music that way so the art right. to not <laughs> exactly. mix it that way that's everybody listens to it through their phones with use it with earbuds yeah. you know so laptop with headphones yeah. is almost overkill compared to <laughs> yeah, how you're it's mixing consumed. for earbuds yeah but the idea of sticking a Neumann in a live room so that the drummer can talk back to you and then accidentally, you know, capturing the effect of an SSL console, that's, that would be harder to discover and, and get it to the mainstream today. I occasionally give this lecture in a music business class talking about kind of the history of music production. A lot of the kids these days, you know, you, you talk about a delay or they have a plug-in called a tape delay and they don't actually know why it's called a tape delay or what it, why it sounds like it does. And if you actually show them then a video of like somebody using a, a actual physical tape delay, like doing the kind of tape delay that like Elvis had on his voice. And then I've had students say, oh, you know, I knew what these what the sounds these things make, but I didn't understand that they were actually connected to a real-world thing. It's been so extracted from the original physical process, like this gated drum sound, right? It's not a natural sound. I think it goes back where people are interested, and it's like you, again, try to find a different sound, and it's not necessarily finding it through inside the computer. It might be just like, oh, you know what? Let's record these drums with one microphone, or only three microphones. We just watched Get Back. I just watched this... Uh, this Beatles documentary, and they had three, three microphones on the drums. Can we do that? You know, it's like maybe I'll try that. You know, so it does kind of loop around where where people, I think, go back to the original old school way of doing things too. Though, so we'll see. When you all recorded, didn't you record? And Sticks was in in the studio, and they had like five mics on the snare drum or something. Is that a is that just a rumor that? 
Well, no, no. It was our actually it was our second record with Steve, but we were we were doing stuff on the weekends. So so this was Chicago Recording Company. So that's right. M- most of their money was coming from jingles. So they would be doing jingles all during the week, and then people like Ian Burgess and Steve Albini could get the weekends for cheap. And then you just book the weekend in a band. So we were there. But then, yeah, Styx was recording in the new studio. So we were in the old studio, which was beautiful. It was the studio where uh, Love Roller Coaster was recorded, like all the uh, Ohio Players stuff. And, but it was the same, right? So we were working on the 70s console, which was the old studio. So nobody wanted to work on that, right? So Steve and Ian would work in that studio because that was the cheap studio. And it was the one that was available on the weekend. Styx was working in the new, you know, '80s, '90s studio, and yeah, they had they had like the guy, the assistant engineer on our session, you know, came back from that that other studio and said uh, other room and said, yeah, they have 48 microphones on the drums for the uh, for the Styx record, <laughs> and it was just like it was like. There were a lot of microphones on our drums in our, you know, Steve was doing room mics and he was doing all the stuff that he does, but it was, yeah, it was definitely, that was more microphones than we had used on the whole record. You can barely see the drums. <laughs> For the microphones. <laughs> From the microphones. It was just like a forest of microphones. I shouldn't laugh. I think there's like 16 drum tracks on our latest recording <laughs> or something like that. There's like top and bottom toms, you know, the whole... Whole mess, but we are we are sort of stole a bunch of tricks from Steve. So in our defense, and there's a good example. We I watched Steve give a lecture to some college students on YouTube, and then we started marking our drums exactly the way that he was telling those students to mic them. Most of the microphones I have are the microphones he recommended I buy thirty years ago. He just gave me a list. This is what you use for a kick drum. Get these for toms and everything like that. So I have like a 1980s, 1990s indie rock starter kit. So you've got $60,000 Russian microphones in your house? Is that what no, you're saying? No, I don't. Yeah, no, he had that. But he was like, oh, well, this is, if you're just recording and starting out recording, yeah, get these, you know. I think he even recommended an SM57. I know he's not a fan of SM57s, but I think he recommended those even. He's like, yeah, you can get one of those. <laughs> Or use those. They those are okay for guitar amps. <laughs> the Audix uh, mics are pretty good for cheap, and they're sort of semi EQ'd. Nice. They work. None of it matters. Like again, <laughs> yeah. Like the first Van Halen record was done with SM57s, and then whatever the cheaper version of an SM57 was. <laughs> like like the drums are all mic'd up with. I think there's there's a Neumann in there, one or two, but it's it's all basic sure mics, and even the less less expensive, whatever that variant of that was like the 57, but cheaper. Yeah. No gear will make you sound like Van Halen, and Dan Halen doesn't need good gear to sound great. We said the same thing about Prince, right? His rig was garbage. It was a knockoff telly through like a Gorilla amp or something using all stock boss pedals. He's just like, eh, I'm a kick-ass guitarist. I don't, I don't need, I don't need good gear. I'm a, I'm a musician. Yeah, so. that's that's the story always with like I think it's like Eric Clapton or something. It's like somebody's playing a guitar and then their guitar and they're not happy with the way it sounds and then Eric Clapton's there and he picks up the guitar and it sounds like Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> right? It doesn't matter, right? You know, it's at some point it's it's how you play the guitar, it's not the guitar itself. So it sounds awful. So he made a bad guitar sound worse? Is that the moral <laughs> no, yeah. of that story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't... I, I knew if I said Eric Clapton, but I feel like that is is what the story was. I should have picked someone else. 
I'm really struggling now because I've always disliked Eric Clapton. I've always ripped on Eric Clapton. I catch a lot of flack. And now that Eric Clapton is so hated, it's like... <laughs> you, you don't uh, want to go along with everyone else. A, you want to, so you kind of feel like... Yeah, it'd be like, oh, yeah. I hate Eric Clapton. It's like, oh yeah, everybody so, yeah. hates Eric Clapton. <laughs> you got to take a stand now. You got to say, you know what? Cut him some slack. He's one of the greatest guitarists ever. <laughs> you ever hear those Blues Breakers records? They're fantastic. <laughs> Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.